Biotech billionaire Brian Johnson has made headlines over the past few years for his extreme methods to reverse aging. Now 46, he spends $2 million a year on healthcare, takes 110 pills a day, and prefers to drive at 16 miles an hour because driving is the most dangerous activity he allows himself. You know, I wonder if he could skip all that and just steal secrets from Paul Rudd. But Johnson's goal is to extend life as long as possible, perhaps even forever. And he's not alone. In 2013, Google spun off a secretive company called Calico with the mission to, quote, solve death. This is far from a novel ambition. In the 1500s, Spanish noble Ponce de Leon set out on a fruitless search for a fabled fountain of youth, which, ironically, cost his life when he was killed by Native Americans. Humans have always searched for a way to live forever and have been willing to sacrifice a lot to live even just a little longer. But all this is wasted effort because the Apostles' Creed implies that this problem's already been solved. Every time we repeat the Apostles' Creed, we conclude, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That sounds great, I, I, I think, because if we're talking about resurrection of this body, uh, frankly, I was hoping for better. And if heaven is where we sit on clouds and white togas playing harps or singing in an eternal church service, am I really all that excited to go there? I'm being silly, but there's a serious point here. When we introduced this sermon series, we explained that the Apostles' Creed is not a dry list of things we think are true but a passionate pledge of allegiance, first declared by first-century Christians in Rome being baptized. They were renouncing their obedience to and fear of Caesar, knowing full well that following Jesus might cost them their lives, but also that this is the only way to full life and life that would last forever. After emerging from baptismal waters, they joined the church in illegally rescuing babies from infanticide and raising them as their own. They'd share generously with people in need. They refused to comply with the corrupt culture of Rome. And eventually, with no weapon but defiant love, they'd overturn the entire empire. And it's this last line of the creed that made them so fearless and courageous. Their conviction that they would live forever with God is what gave them courage to start living that way right now. I don't see many Christians like that in America today. We've mostly accommodated our culture, acquiesced to its demands, settled for its promises. We store up treasure in retirement accounts and fret most about getting into the right college or fitting into our old genes. We don't follow Jesus. We follow the Kardashians. We're so preoccupied with achieving what our culture calls the good life that we don't give much thought to eternal life. And while American Christians enjoy worldly power, we lack the godly power 
to confront evil and inspire hope and love our enemies, resist temptation, and change the world that a tiny group of Roman slaves had. I wonder if the fact that we've forgotten the way we will live forever is what has robbed us of the courage to live that way right now. Today's world doesn't need more money, better policies, or better presidential candidates as much as it needs true Christians who actually live with Jesus and love like Jesus. God sent us to save the world, and yet we've settled for savoring the world. So today, in the final sermon in this series, I'm going to challenge what you believe about eternal life because I believe that can inspire us to start living fuller, freer, and more fruitful lives today. Today, we're going to talk about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. You know, before becoming a Christian, I thought I already understood eternity from the iconic art of pudgy toddlers with wings lounging on the clouds. I know it's supposed to be soothing, but I think it sounds boring. When I first started following Christ, people told me I had it all wrong. Heaven's like a never-ending praise service, but that's not much better. Don't get me wrong. Worshiping God with energized believers can be thrilling, but as a pastor, by the third consecutive service, some Sundays, I'm just sick of singing already. So the prospect of singing nonstop for eternity feels painful. In that case, Billy Joel got it right when he sang, they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Heaven, the way many Christians describe it, doesn't sound like a place I really want to go. I mean, it's better than the alternative, but I like adventure and athletics. I like trying, tasting, and creating new things. I enjoy discovery and deep conversations. Hard music can be nice for the duration of an elevator ride, but laughing with friends around a fire, diving into a clear lake, and hugging my wife and kids here on Earth sounds a lot more appealing than perpetual harp playing on a cloud. But the heaven described in the Bible is nothing like that. The Bible has lots to say about eternity, but most Christians have missed it. Maybe it's because once when I was preparing a sermon about it, a couple of high rockers commented that the Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So how can I preach about heaven when the Bible says we can't know about it? But that's the opposite of what this verse means. Paul's admitting no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but, verse 10, God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The whole point is that we can't know about heaven unless God tells us about it, and God has told us about it. Yes, much of that's in metaphor because it's beyond anything that we've seen or conceived of, but metaphors mean that there are parts we can understand. A second, closely related reason why we're so ignorant about eternity is that so few people talk about it. You've probably heard many sermons about how to get into heaven, but most Christians can attend church their entire lives and never hear a single sermon about heaven itself. 
As a seminary student, I was assigned a, a theology book that was super thorough, spending 38 pages on creation and 40 pages on baptism and communion. Yet, out of over 700 pages, the place we'll spend eternity earned only one page. One! All Christians hope to go to heaven, but we rarely talk about why we'd want to. Third reason we have misconceptions about heaven is that this is exactly Satan's goal because he likes to blaspheme God and slander his dwelling place. By making heaven sound boring, the devil's convinced us that we'd better hoard as much pleasure as possible on earth before the unending monotony we're expecting in heaven. Well, no wonder we're so obsessed with delaying death. But people like Paul and John, who understood heaven, proclaimed, to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Embracing God's promises about eternity has transformed generations of saints into joyful, fearless followers of Jesus who healed the sick, fed the poor, ended slavery, overturned injustice, and changed the world. So I want to talk about heaven because it can transform you too. And let's begin by identifying where heaven is. Because this is where our misconceptions begin. The root of the Hebrew word for heaven, Hashemayim, is used to refer to multiple things, starting with the very air we breathe. It can also refer to the sky, where birds fly, and from which rain falls. The same word can describe space, where the stars and sun reside. And that word can refer to the realm where God lives and where we will live with him forever. What modern English speakers distinguish as air, sky, space, and the place where God lives were all referred to using the same word for the ancients. So they developed a very simple cosmology that made sense of these three heavens. This is why, although he didn't actually go anywhere, Paul described his direct encounter with the Lord as being caught up in the third heaven, meaning he entered a spiritual realm that's beyond what we typically see. The easiest way to conceptualize these distinct realms is in layers, and this seems to corroborate the biblical declarations that God is on high or the most high. It's easy to read those literally, but mostly it's a metaphor. In those cultures, a king sat on a throne that was literally higher than anyone else in order to convey superiority and power. So declaring the Lord to be the most high is not helping us locate him on a map, but is the assertion that he's more powerful than any possible king or deity. But notice where God lives on this map, above the galaxies, past where even our best telescopes can see. And that's how many of us still think of heaven, which is to say, very far away. God is very far away. And that's how many of us feel, that God's far away. Or, or that God is someday, in the future, after I die. But here, for now, I'm on my own. When I'm feeling tempted, lonely, discouraged, or hopeless. Sometimes I can start wondering, you know, if God's beyond the galaxies, can he even see if I'm sinning? 
or, or suffering? And from all the way up there, would he even care? In those moments, my faith starts to waver and sin seems more enticing because God's far away. So I'm on my own. I bet that most of you have wondered those same things. But Jesus came from heaven to announce that God's not beyond the galaxies. He's right here with us, intimately involved in our lives. N near? How could God God's kingdom be near? Because, I mean, I don't see it. A few decades ago, string theorists asserted that rather than the three dimensions we see, there are actually 11 dimensions. Other physicists have posited the possibility of multiverses, an infinite number of universes, which may not be in distant places, but right here in different dimensions we can't yet perceive. Artists have helped us imagine that by creating what feels like an infinite number of cinematic universes, in which, for example, there may be three distinct Spider-Men operating simultaneously in separate dimensions. Scientists and artists are inching closer to what theologians have been saying for centuries. The kingdom of God, or dimension where God, angels, and demons dwell, is intimately among us in a way we don't easily perceive. Imagine it like one of those mirrors that we always see in cop shows. You know, the, the officers can see the suspect, but not the other way around. But he knows they're there, watching, and listening, and when they're ready, crossing into the interview room to interact with the suspect directly. Using a, a variation of that metaphor, Paul says, for now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Other times, the Bible uses the metaphor of a curtain or veil that prevents humans from seeing God directly, but through which God sees us. Central to Jesus' message is that God is not out there somewhere. God's here. So we don't need to wait to meet God after I die. We can do it right now. For now, all of us are living on the earth, but that's not what's significant. What's significant is that we're living in the dimension of this world, which is passing away. Eventually, death will destroy this temporary dimension, but eternal life begins as soon as I start engaging with God and living in both dimensions simultaneously, one of which will eventually disappear and the other of which will last forever. And this is what Jesus was talking about in our scripture reading today. Jesus assures his followers, there's more than enough room in my father's home, meaning in the language of modern science, the dimension of full reality where God reigns. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you'll always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We've no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? A lot of us can relate to Thomas here because he'd been hearing for years that God's kingdom is near, but he still hadn't seen it. So how can he know how to go there? Jesus explained, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. What we'll soon be celebrating at Christmas is Jesus crossing the boundary between the dimensions where God reigns and the dimension where death reigns, where violence, chaos, fear, hatred, and sin seem to be the ultimate realities. In order to save us, God crossed that boundary and became one of us in Jesus. This is why the angels marveled and sang. They were astounded that God would do this. Jesus is God living in both the the seen and unseen dimensions simultaneously. And this is why Jesus could tell Philip in our scripture reading, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus did more than just simply teach us how to get along better, but then leave us on our own to fail again. No, God came as Jesus to invite us back home past the curtain, dividing the two dimensions. And this is why when Jesus was crucified, we read in odd detail, the temple curtain was torn in two. I mean, the Son of God just died. There's an earthquake. Dead people are rising. And someone's worried about the temple decor. But this curtain was more than decoration. It divided the the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And it symbolized the division between the secular world where we live and the sacred world where God lives. Only the high priest was ever allowed behind that curtain and only one time each year. But suddenly that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain was 60 feet high and four inches thick. No human could rip it. But God ripped it from top to bottom. To use an image from science fiction, the Lord's opening a portal between the two dimensions. Sort of like when Jesus was baptized and he saw heaven torn open so the Father could speak and the Spirit could descend like a dove. But the small hole opened at Jesus' crucifixion will never be closed up. Jesus passed through it into heaven at his ascension. A few weeks later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit invaded our dimension, taking permanent outposts for God's kingdom in the hearts of those who've pledged allegiance to Jesus. And a few people have gotten direct vision into heaven, like Paul and John. When Stephen was being executed for following Jesus, God enabled him to see into heaven to sustain his courage and hope. But most of us see only glimmers and shadows for now. Celtic Christians talk about thin places where the membrane dividing heaven and earth is so sheer that you can almost see right through it. Mountaintops, sunsets, oceans, holding a baby, or the exhilaration of a worship service where people are singing so exuberantly we can almost hear the harmonies of the angels on the other side of the veil, or during baptisms where we can hear heaven cheering alongside us. This is what the High Rock Christmas concert has been for me. It's more than music. It's a thin place where the veil between heaven and earth becomes so thin, I feel like I can see right through it. Far more easily, we can speak and hear through the veil. Years ago, my parents owned a rustic cabin in New Hampshire. 
The walls separating the bedrooms were a single sheet of plywood that didn't reach all the way to the ceiling. So while we couldn't see each other, we could converse easily through those thin walls. And this is what prayer is, talking with God through the curtain. But Jesus' plan isn't simply to open a hole in that veil, but to tear it down completely one day so that the kingdom of heaven will spill out all over the earth. As Paul put it, for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And this completely changes the way most of us think about eternity. You know, most people assume that when we die, we go to a peaceful place in the clouds where we play harps and hang out with God forever. But Scripture promises the opposite, that God will take over our universe to redeem it, renew it, and restore it. This is the vision God gave John that we read about in Revelation. I heard a, a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. So God's not going to abandon his creation. He's going to restore it. We won't go to some mystical place where God reigns. God will reign everywhere, while the dimension where death dominates will be destroyed. This is why Jesus rising from the dead is such a big deal. It's the beginning of the end of death. At that time, Jesus will shout to his faithful saints, Come! You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Well, where, where is that kingdom? Exactly where it's been since creation, on earth. God's creation, but no longer marred by suffering and sin. It will be life as God originally designed it to be. So it makes sense that heaven's described in ways that are very familiar. Rivers, trees, animals, mountains, food, friends, singing. And cities, and where there are cities, there's culture, conversation, creativity, and commerce. Expanding on Eden, I expect there to be work and art, intimacy and exploration, and probably even sports, but no New York Yankees. And there'll be no church buildings or temples, because we won't have to go anywhere to worship God. We'll walk with him and worship him everywhere. Because the Holy of Holies has spilled out onto the whole earth. And that means our work will be worship. Our relationships will be worship. Our joy, laughter, and love will be worship. Rather than lounge about aimlessly, we'll work in eternity. Because our work is part of the way God created us to care for creation with him. So work may be something like it is today, but without all the thorns and aggravations that can make work so frustrating. Some current jobs won't be needed then. You know, without sin, there'll be no need for police. Without decay, no need for dentists. I mean, heaven feels better for some of you already. And, and without death, no morticians. But God is creative. So we should expect that we, who are made in his image, 
will also be creators, forever building new cities and new beauty like he does, nurturing new life and helping each other thrive. Many of you are doing this already, which is why our current work matters, because this earth will not be replaced by heaven, but redeemed by it. Instead of eliminating desire and personality, as some Eastern religions have told us to expect, the Bible describes constant desire and constant fulfillment. Along with the perfection of personalities, we finally become exactly what God created us to be. You know, sometimes you try to draw or build something, but whatever you end up with never looks exactly like what you'd pictured in your head. This is the perpetual frustration of artists. But J.R. Tolkien imagines a world in which our creativity is fully expressed without compromises so that we can create exactly what we dream of. And free of the insecurity and selfishness that complicate our relationships, we'll be able to express, express exactly what we feel and think without fumbling or, or fear so we can experience complete intimacy. Instead of differences between us causing divisions, we'll recognize them as beautiful expressions of our Father's creativity so there'll be no more war, hatred, or racism. I expect to travel and explore the new earth so that we can see its amazing beauty unsoiled by the curse and unmuted by pollution or extinction. Waterfalls, animals, ecosystems, exactly as God designed them, blue skies, untainted by smog, all causing us to gasp at God's handiwork. You know, lots of people make bucket lists of places they want to see before they die. But I, I don't want to waste time with that. I want to see them after I die, when all things have been made new and I can behold their true beauty. Perhaps we'll also explore other planets and galaxies. I don't know that, but we'll have plenty of time. Eternity and an eternally creative God who can keep making new galaxies faster than we can discover them. I mean, scientists tell us he's already been doing that for millennia. Maybe some engineers on the new Earth will eventually design a vehicle to speed beyond Pluto and into the outer reaches of space. Maybe we'll tell jokes about the old days when we thought the James Webb telescope let us see really far. That sounds cool, but won't it be boring to be good all the time? That very question suggests we've fallen for Satan's lie. That sin brings fulfillment, but righteousness is boring. However, in reality, sin robs us of fulfillment. Sin spoils God's greatest gifts, including love and friendship and intimacy and power. Sin creates distrust, disease, uncertainty and regret. But when sin is taken away so that we can freely indulge in friendship, adventure and intimacy, when sin stops distracting us from the true beauty of who God is and what God's designed, and there can be endless fascination, and boredom becomes impossible. Think back to one of your favorite moments. I remember an evening on a beach with my children running joyfully around me while I sat with my wife watching an incredible sunset. Or maybe it could be sitting around a warm fire with friends or standing atop a mountain admiring the splendor in every direction or the exhilaration of a kiss with someone you truly love. In those moments, we might say, this is heaven, when in fact, it's not heaven, it's only earth. But we intuitively recognize that it's a thin place, a glimpse of what it will be like 
when God finally restores the world to what it should be. Heaven is often described as ecstasy. Literally, that word means to stand outside yourself. Heaven's joy is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. This is why kids bring such joy. They certainly don't make life easier, but they help us get outside ourselves to experience the true ecstasy of serving and loving someone else. Love always costs, and yet when it's truly love, it takes us outside our own self-centeredness. Ecstasy. Imagine that for eternity. The creed declares the belief in the resurrection of the body. But what will those bodies be like? The Bible suggests that instead of ghosts floating around, we'll have bodies much like our current bodies, but not subject to disease, injuries, arthritis, or death. But what will they look like? My grandfather passed away after suffering a series of debilitating strokes. In heaven, will he get back the 80-year-old body he had moments before death, or the handsome, healthy one he had in his tennis-playing 20s? Maybe each of us gets the body we had when we were at our best. Some of us would say that's in our 20s, but I'm hoping that my best days are still to come. I mean, Sean Connery was crowned sexiest man alive at 59, and George Clooney is 62, so there's hope. But all this misses the point. In 1 Corinthians 15, we learn that our heavenly bodies won't simply be replicas of the ones we have now. Jesus' resurrected body apparently looked like Jesus, so the people recognized him. But the women at the tomb and the disciples walking toward Emmaus didn't recognize him right away. Something was the same, but something was different. I don't know much more than that. But I do know that the life everlasting celebrated in the creed is not just this life forever. That would be a curse. No, life everlasting is a new kind of life that we're invited to start living right now. Because the Holy Spirit of God we will live with forever can live inside us starting now. And we can start doing things now that will last forever. Which raises a final question. What will last for eternity? N.T. Wright asks this question in his book, Surprised by Hope, and answers, not your car, house, degrees, trophies, or, or bank balance. What will last forever is every service to the needy, every dollar given to feed the hungry, every drop of water given to the thirsty, every investment in missions, every prayer for others, every interaction invested in evangelism, and every moment spent caring for children, including rocking them to sleep and changing their diapers. Close quote. Therefore, Paul writes, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Life on earth matters, not because it's the only one we have, but precisely because it isn't. It's the beginning of a life that will continue without end. So the goal is not to live in such a way as to get into heaven someday after we die, but training ourselves to recognize heaven all around us right now and living in that reality even while we're still living in this temporary dimension dominated by death. 
I don't have to wait to meet God and experience his power and grace. I can do that every day because the kingdom of heaven isn't far away or someday. It's near. It's here. It's now. When I declare with the Apostles' Creed that I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, I'm reminded again that I don't need to seek full satisfaction during this short time before death. So I'm liberated to give my life away for a purpose greater than self-gratification. Michelle and I knew that adopting so many children would be costly in terms of money, time, freedom, and ease. We'll have plenty of time for uninterrupted peace and joy in the age to come. We're going to live forever. But only now can I join God defeating sin, overcoming injustice, healing the hurting, sharing the gospel, and rescuing people from hopelessness. And ironically, that gives me peace and joy already. Friends, too many of us have forgotten about God's promises. Except for Sundays, maybe we forget about God. Instead of storing up treasure in heaven, as Jesus advised, we're settling for whatever treasure or pleasure we can find right now on earth. I get it. The current world is easy to see. Its temptations are easy to hear. But even though he's right here, it takes effort to train our eyes to look for God among us, to train our ears to hear his voice, to train our will to joyfully obey whatever he commands. But when we do that, our lives are changed. We start living in ways that will make the most of these days and doing things that will last for eternity. We start to live life to the full, the everlasting life Jesus came to bring us. As we move toward confession, ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you've been storing up treasure on earth. Show you where you've been settling for this world instead of savoring God's promises and God's presence. Jesus called out, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Heeding that suggestion, let's take time in silence to listen for the Lord speaking to us through the veil and then speaking back our repentance and our resolve to depend daily on his Holy Spirit. After that, we'll join the Christians from every century and country declaring our allegiance to the Lord using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Join me in silent confession now. Now let us confess our sins together, saying, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now, 
because we know that God has forgiven us and called us into new life. Let us profess our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.